I am extremely excited to announce the next Regenerate Decentralized Health Summit is happening on August the 3rd and 4th in Albury, New South Wales. This conference brings together Australian and world experts on the themes of this podcast in a live format allowing you to learn, connect, and participate. For the first time ever, we are hosting a two-day event. Day one is all about decentralization of the food system, of farming, and of health, featuring Dr. Pran Yoganathan, Melanie Jackson of the Great Birth Rebellion, Cindy O'Meara of the Nutrition Academy, Regenerative Farmers, Jake Walkie, and David Bushell. Day two is all about light and health and is the most comprehensive day of talks on practical applications of circadian and quantum biology ever held in Australia. Featuring EMF expert Tristan Scott from the USA, quantum practitioner Kira Lee, light expert and Ricky Flow nutrition podcast host Cameron Borg, as well as yours truly. Stuart McWilliam will also be taking us through natural sequence farming, and there will be speakers panel discussions on both days. For those intending in person, there will be barbecued meats by Walkie Farm and Discovered Wild Foods. The golden ticket is a VIP pass, giving you access to both summit days, full catering, and a welcome dinner, as well as buses to and from the venue, and a whole lot more. For those interstate or international, a live stream pass is available for purchase that gives you live access to all 13 sum- sessions of the summit. You can get your tickets to Regenerate Aubrey now at the website, regenerateoz.com. Links are in the description. There are a strictly limited number of live tickets, so secure yours now so you don't miss out. Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork, and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship, and chemical-free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks, and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, 
then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue look blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, onto the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Regenerative Health Podcast. I am sitting down with a very special guest, Dr. Anthony Jay. Now, Dr. Jay is uh, what I consider the world leader on the topic of endocrine-disrupting chemicals and, and their effects on human health. Uh, Dr. Jay is the author of a fantastic book titled Estrogeneration that outlines the harmful effect that these chemicals are having on, on our biology and is currently speaking and consulting on the topics of uh, the harms of endocrine disruptors. So, Dr. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. Cool. So, look, the this is a topic that not a lot of people really know about, but I think it's having quite a significant effect um, in, in, a, in a bunch of ways on perhaps one of the most critical aspects of our uh, hu- human uh, function, which is our ability to reproduce. So um, what, if you're able to give the listener a really brief uh, overview of, of what endocrine-disrupting chemicals are and, and how they are having broadly an effect, a negative effect on our biology. Yeah, for sure. I mean... One of the problems with these chemicals is they act like estrogen. They act like hormones in our bodies. And these are synthetic man-made chemicals that our ancestors for thousands of years were never exposed to. And I say it's a problem right off the bat because they're not really toxic, right? Like if you have some cyanide or something and you put it in, in a dish that has some cells in it, it kills the cells, right? And so it's very obviously toxic, or if you have some, I don't know, pesticide or herbicide, you can develop the toxicity on a little graph. The problem with a lot of these chemicals that I focus on is they don't appear toxic in conventional biological research. They look harmless, but they alter your hormones. They disrupt your hormones. They impact your sex hormones in particular. And that's obviously a problem, but it's hard to recognize that in our system, the toxicology system that we have set up. Yeah, and I mean, for the, for the listener, the, the to give a really brief overview of the the biology. I mean, I like to think of of our sex hormones as a, a really finely tuned uh, orchestra or symphony, and we need you know the right doses of of estrogen and progesterone uh, at the right time of the month to to ovulate normally. Um, we need testosterone which is the male hormone in men to to be signaling and uh, to signal uh, adequately to develop as uh, our sex characteristics to develop as a man as men to produce high quality sperm so so these these are hormones that are produced by our testes by our ovaries um, in response to signals from our, our pituitary gland and from our brain and they as you mentioned dr j they they were for you know millions of years we've evolved them to be uh, acting in a very specific way and then man-made industry comes along and we we contrive all these uh, chemicals that have uses industrially and and otherwise but uh, as you say they're having an effect of disrupting this really finely tuned uh, uh, orchestra and and Mm -hmm. therefore 
um, having a, an effect. Is that ha, ha, how do you think that's correct, or how do you? Oh think yeah, that? that's perfectly stated. And mm. and these hormones, just natural levels of testosterone, estradiol, estrogen, progesterone, we measure them in nanograms, right? Sometimes picograms, you know, like ten to the minus ninth grams. So point zero 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 one grams. I mean, that's the unit of measurement. So these, these things are certainly fine tuned and, and the concentrations are super carefully regulated and, you know, nanograms per deciliter, right. In the American units now in, in Australia, they, they use more of the European units, but still the point is super tiny doses. It's almost hard to imagine how small these doses are. And of course that can get disrupted readily. If you've got a soup of chemicals that you're being exposed to every single day, if it was just once a week or something, yeah, it's no problem, right? I mean, your body gets a little disruption and kind of bounces back from that. But the problem is it's not just every day. It's actually multiple chemicals every day. And that's what I focus on because a lot of researchers, they only study one of the chemicals and they, they develop 10 years of research surrounding just one endocrine disrupting chemical. Hmm. That's fine for that scientist, right? Because it's interesting and they give talks and lectures on it and they stay in their academic bubble, you know, and they stay in their lane. But the problem is people like us that have kids or just want to live a healthy life or want to have energy and sex drive and fertility and not depression, you know, not, not breast cancer, right? Breast cancer is up 250% since 1980. Mm. fertility has been setting records declining every year for infertility we're setting records so the point is you know these things have a lot of impacts and people like us that want to be healthy want to recognize like what are all the chemicals not just one of them we want to know the whole soup and then start to work on avoiding them and sure we're never going to be perfect because you're always going to have exposures in our modern culture and that's okay but at least we can do some obvious things. It, part of it's just the recognition, right? Like once you, and you know this probably because once you started raising your own level of awareness, awareness around these chemicals, it changed the way you think about things. Mm. You're like, well, and, I, could buy, I could buy this water, but this one's in plastic. This one's in glass. Well, I'm going to choose the glass. And 10 years, but 10 years before that, you may not have even thought of that. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to diving in for the listener and explaining exactly um, which chemicals exist and, and where they they're found. They're found, but I, I really want to emphasize that point that you made earlier, which is, you know, if you dump um, a bunch of um, like paraquat, you know, on, on or you you know someone drinks paraquat or cyanide, that is directly cytotoxic. It will directly kill the cell then and there. It's you know game over. Like the cyanide blocks your 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 mitochondria's ability to function on a, on a very very fundamental level, um, and that that will kill the cell. But what um, what Doctor J is saying is that this is like a hidden you know sneak like a trap. It's like a, a hidden time bomb almost. It's it's really insidious because the chemicals, these endocrine disruptors themselves, aren't necessarily killing the cell per se, but they're just simply putting that spanner in the works such that the organism in, in totality can't um, perform its normal uh, endocrine and, and, and reproductive uh, functions as as normal, so it's it's very like um, insidious a type of toxicity that that we're dealing with here. Correct, and it's at such a fine, such a tiny dose. You know, fifty years ago, we weren't even able to measure a lot of this. Mm. Um, 
And now we do, but we still don't have lab tests. People are always asking me, like, what's the blood test that I need to go to ask the doctor about to check for BPA or phthalates or parabens or whatever the thing? Well, they don't have them. They don't exist. They, they have them in research labs. We can do this these research studies and, and you can... You'd be shocked by how many people. It's basically everybody. It's like over. It's like over ninety-five percent of people have most, if not all, of the top ten list in my book that I write about in their bloodstream at mm. a pretty high, a surprisingly high, high dose. Mm. Not only do they go through your intestinal lining if you're drinking water that's in plastics or whatever, but they also go through your skin. And so we'll talk about all of that because you know, just people like I say, the recognition is the first step. Yes, and and I. I uh, work in in family practice, and I see see patients. And commonly, I'm seeing um, often I see young women, and they they're suffering from quite bad endometriosis or, or polycystic uh, ovary syndrome. And uh, I'm aware that there is evidence of associational evidence that people who have high rates of certain endocrine disrupting chemicals uh, detected by by in in their urine um, or in their sweat have higher incidences or, or of these kind of reproductive problems. So, Well, hang on. Um, can, I, can I pause you there for a second please. and add something? Um, now, in, in Australia, is the chemical atrazine legal or is it illegal? Yeah, it is. It it's is. It's being, it's being sprayed all over the canola here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as America. Now, in Europe, like in Germany, France, Italy, whatever, it's completely illegal. Um, but, yeah, I thought so. I wasn't sure, but... One of the interesting things about atrazine, and just for the listeners, atrazine is a herbicide. Like you were saying, they spray it on seeds and grains and, and canola, and, um, especially in boggy areas where there's a lot of water because uh, it's it persists a lot longer on the plants than glyphosate, than Roundup. Uh, Roundup in America is the number one used herbicide, probably similar over there, and then atrazine is the number two used herbicide. Um, now, the reason I'm bringing up atrazine, number one, you know, it's a man-made artificial chemical. <laughs> Number two, it acts like estrogen in our bodies. It disrupts our endocrine system, especially our testosterone. It lowers free and total testosterone. And number three, scientists use atrazine, Max, to induce polycystic ovarian syndrome. If you want to study PCOS, you give you give a mouse a pretty high dose of atrazine and you get PCOS. And then they try wow. and develop drugs to cure polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's like, well, let's focus on preventing it from the, from the start instead of giving it the things and then trying to reverse it, right? Incredible. And, uh, I mean, atrazine could be a podcast on its own, but I, I talked to a, an agronomist, uh, David Bushel, yeah, for, for the listener, they can check out my early episodes. But um, there's a percentage of canola grown in Australia that's Roundup ready, so genetically modified, to be sprayed with glyphosate. Um, and therefore withstand its tox- its toxic effect, but a proportion of non-GMO uh, c- canola exists mm-hmm. as well, uh, and atrazine is very very commonly sprayed uh, on, yeah. on, on that canola, and it, it makes me wonder. And this is maybe there's so many tangents we could go on, but are you aware of atrazine residue persisting in through the refining process of canola into the finished product? I'm not. I, I haven't checked that in a while. I'm sure it's mm. in there. I'm sure it persists, mm. especially at the nanogram levels, but it's it's probably a surprisingly high persistence level. Um, but I don't know. I have not looked at the studies recently. It's been a while, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Even, it even persists in cow blood. Like when they do feedlot studies on cows, um, 
they find outrageous amounts of atrazine in their blood just from the corn. Mm. You know, because of course with the feedlots, the purpose of the feedlot is to give the cow fat. So they give them as much corn as they possibly can. If a cow eats unlimited corn, they get bloated and they die. They can't handle just going from grass to corn. So they have to work them up slowly into more and more and more corn. And they do, they said these giant feedlots and, um, and they've checked the cattle's, the, they've checked the blood. And again, I mentioned this in my book. I have the specific numbers in my book. And it's it's like just as a reference, right? I don't remember the exact number, but it's I know very close to the exact. Like in humans, for me and Umax, our testosterone, let's say, is probably about 700. And we'll just ignore the units for now. These are American units I'm using. But let's just say it's about 700, right? And the range is like 500 to 1,500. Or sometimes people say 300 to 1,500, but whatever, right? Um, we're about 700 Ca- feedlot cows. Atrazine levels were 700,000. They were over 700,000 in the equivalent mm-hmm. units. Does that make sense? Yeah. Staggering. Right. And that's just from incredible eating, eating corn. Now, of course you could argue that canola, nobody's eating raw canola. They're, they're using canola oil because they're creating it, turning it into oil. So I don't know how much gets lost in the refining process. That's why I'm, I'm waffling a little bit on that specific thing, but you know, I know it's in there and I'm sure a lot of it carries, probably a surprising amount carries over. Yeah. And, um, you know, people who are uh, eating canola oil or using cooking canola oil to cook or eating out that been food that contains canola oil, there'll be other endocrine disruptors that I imagine have probably leached from the phthalate, uh, phthalates in the plastic mm-hmm. bottle into that exactly. oil. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so for sure, that one's for sure. <laughs> that one's not a question. <laughs> so, so whether or not you, you the atrazine is getting through, you, you're definitely being exposed to other forms of uh, of endocrine disruptors, which are are that are, are these are the phthalates uh, lipophilic or fat soluble? Oh, yeah. Is that oh, for sure. yeah, yeah. No. So phthalates yeah. are a category of molecules that, once again, they disrupt your your endocrine system. They, particularly mess up your testosterone and they act like estrogen in certain cases. The problem with phthalates and, and parabens, by the way, um, and, and they're both found in fragrances and phthalates are especially used in plastics, but they're actually a category of molecules. So they're not just one thing. So it'd be a lot easier if it was just phthalates, right? If phthalate was just one thing or if parabens were just one thing, but there's methylparaben and propylparaben and butylparaben, right? There's all these different, there's hundreds of different parabens and there's hundreds of different phthalates. And then once they get into your system, your body breaks them down into metabolites that can also disrupt your hormones. And mm. then it's another layer of complexity. And then the question is, well, have we studied the metabolites? And the answer is no, because we haven't even studied the original parent compounds in most cases, mm. right? Because there's so many of them. They kind of study the top one or two. And those one or two are, of course, disconcerting. They're very scary in terms of what they do to long-term health. And it's sneaky. You know, it's just like disrupting your hormones a little bit over a long period of time, but you're not going to pick it up in a six week study and it's not toxic, but you know, all of a sudden you see weight gain and you see depression and you see, uh, you know, infertility, like we're talking about breast cancer, low testosterone for men and, and on and on. And, you know, even immune system dysfunction and blood clotting issues getting amplified with some of these chemicals. So there's a lot of very specific health issues that you can watch for, but most of those don't happen overnight. And most of the studies have not, you know, they haven't accounted for a lot of that because there's, there's such short-term studies. 
Yes, and and look, what what you're saying is really re- reminiscent of a talk I did with Tucker Goodrich uh, on seed oils, mm. and he was making the point that the the exact same case exists with the breakdown products of linoleic acid, which is mm-hmm. the poly, polyunsaturated fatty acid in 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 most seed oils that that can vary in percentages, but um, is 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 one of the chief uh, poofers in in these oils, and you know their breakdown products, the, the, the ones that we know a lot about, like four hydroxy nonanol and um, the the HODE type compounds, they're they're toxic. But as you say, there's there's ongoing breakdown of those the compounds themselves, and the toxicity exists, you know, all, all the way down, uh, and we just simply haven't got our heads around. Uh, the exact toxicity of those metabolites and perhaps how they're interacting with with other compounds in the body. So it, it, it really points to this idea of insidious long-term cumulative uh, damage and harm that's that's being done by by exposure to to things like these endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, before we we leave atrazine, uh, I, I wanted to make the point that as far as I was aware, the initial discovery of the endocrine disrupting effect of atrazine the chemical was in animals because they noticed that uh in wild animals i believe it was in the u.s uh maybe perhaps alligators or other forms of amphibians were having reproductive problems and were developing uh agenesis or um sex changes sex changes in in with their sex organs um is that is that um correct yeah, because those animals living in the water. So atrazine, mm. especially with frogs and, and animals that live in water, absorb a lot more through their skin just constantly. And, mm. and it's, again, surprisingly low doses. You can, you can convert a male frog into a female by just having them in water that has atrazine, and it's unbelievably low doses, like to the point where it's almost undetectable. Wow. But yeah, but it does alter the, the re- you know, the reproductive organs. And sometimes it's not as dramatic as changing a male into a female. Sometimes it just changes the way their brain works or sometimes it changes, shrinks their, the male or sex organs a little bit or something like that. Right. Anogenital distance is what Shauna Swan does a lot of research. I don't know if you've heard of her with their book, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. And they used to call it male feminization in scientific research. You know, they would call it male feminization and now it's politically incorrect. So nobody wants to touch it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Now, mm. I talk about it publicly all the time, but I'm fairly independent. Mm. Most scientists that I talk to that have PhDs and do research on this, they don't want to talk publicly about it, but they're happy to tell me like, of course, this is happening. Of course, this is a huge problem. And of course, this is chemical by nature. And, you know, and that, and that's what you see in the culture in the past 20 or 30 years, right? I mean, if you're measuring testosterone levels, you see them declining. And once again, it's not just atrazine. It's not just phthalates. It's not just parabens. It's not just you know, methyl benzaldine camphor in the sunscreens or the avobenzene or the, you know, the benzene, the benzene compounds in the sunscreens. There's the yeah. soy, right? There's so many things. And when they do these studies with soy, just, I know it's a little off topic, but <laughs> soy is another one that acts like estrogen. All the scientists agree it acts like estrogen. Nobody debates that. What they try and debate is whether it's good for you or bad for you, but everybody agrees it's acting like estrogen in some cases, disrupting your hormones. But the problem is, our bodies are so awash in all of these chemicals, it's hard to see the difference. Mm. You know, like if you're in most civilization, 
you've got so much plastic in your system and you put a little extra soy in there. It's like, well, it's pretty negligible in terms of the effects. But if you go up to Alaska and you find some native tribe like the Eskimos or something, you know, you don't, it's, it's basically unethical to start dosing them with these plastic chemicals. Right. Mm. Um, and then if you, or, or giving them soy isn't necessarily unethical in that case, but those are the kind of studies you'd probably want to see, but then you could argue, well, soy is not something that their ancestors did in that particular culture. So then there's the cultural genetics that come into play. So it's kind of complicated, you know, so it, and, and nobody's willing to do those kind of studies anyways, but that's the kind of study you almost have to do to see these effects. You have to take out all the other ones, but most scientists aren't, they're not recognizing the soup. They're just recognizing yes. one chemical at a time and researching one chemical at a time because you spread yourself pretty thin in research. Most people focus on one thing. That's what you get your funding for. That's what you spend your life focusing on. You don't become a, an expert in 10 chemicals. You become an expert in one family of chemicals or something. So it's challenging. You see that the research can be hard, but my, you know, my, my philosophy on a lot of this is look, we're definitely, everybody agrees. We're definitely overexposing ourselves to too many of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, and, and add, and soy definitely acts like estrogen. Let's not add another one. Like let's not continue to amplify our estrogenic response in our body. Right. Yeah. That's my philosophy. Now, if people disagree and they want to do a lot of soy, that's okay. In fact, I don't, you know, if people want to drink out of plastic, that's, that's fine for as far as that, that goes, I'm just not going to do it. You know, and I do think there is long-term effects to that kind of behavior, but people can still do what they want to do. I'm not going to force them to make these kind of decisions, but I at least want to raise awareness that well, here's what I think. And I've done a lot of research on this. So take it for what it's worth. Yes. And, uh, I, I like it that you brought up the soy example, because what, it, what it's illustrating is that there's multiple sources of endocrine disrupting chemicals. So there's soy is obviously a food source of 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 endocrine disruptor, uh, and it's a it's a phytoestrogen, meaning that it's uh, it's a chemical that's a, a plant based uh, estrogen. But we're we're obviously also getting uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals from food via. Uh, plastics which are are ingested um they're obviously synthetic there's also pesticides and then there's also a, a range of other chemicals so so i mean let's let's uh i i know it can be sound overwhelming for the listener but um maybe if we go through maybe if we start at the most common one um because m most people will probably heard of bpa and they've probably looked down at their nalgene water bottle and, and see that it says bpa free uh, and they have an, an intuition that that's a good thing, but but maybe maybe you'll just talk to us a little bit about bisphenol A and and why that's the most well known one and what that effect it, it has. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, BPA was developed in the 1920s by a guy named Charles Dodds, I think. Um, D o d d s, I believe. I can't remember for sure his name, but uh, he developed it from a compound called diethylstilbestrol. It's the acronym is DES, D-E-S. And he developed BPA as birth control. That was his interest. That's what he was doing. It acts like estrogen. Let's make it a birth control and make a bunch of money on it. But then they found other compounds like 17-alpha-ethenolestradiol that works better as birth control. So they, they switched gears and used that. But then they also discovered that BPA can turn into plastic. You know, if you link these molecules together... It's called a polymer instead of a monomer. A monomer would just be one molecule. A polymer would be a chain of them together, of course. 
And what they spent decades doing publicly is telling people and convincing people that this does not leach. These BPA molecules are all linked together. They're polymers. They're not monomers. So they don't leach. It's okay. You can drink out of the water bottles and all this kind of thing. Well, and then they finally started doing research into it. And of course, this is 30 years into having these plastics readily available and publicly available. And by the way, some people still have these plastic bottles. If you look on the the recycling symbol in the bottom of the bottle and it says number seven, that's probably BPA. There's a few other options, but most of 99% of the time that's BPA. So anyways, when they finally started measuring the leaching, you know, they find, oh, everything has, it's leaching, it's leaching. Sure, it's polymers, but when you're making a polymer, you're always going to have free monomers in there. You know, you're always going to have a few existing single molecules of BPA that end up leaching into the plastic. And that's what they find. And of course, they have major health ramifications. Like, for example, even children that have more more BPA in their urine have extremely high levels of depression compared to children with zero BPA or low BPA in their urine. And that's a problem because children aren't supposed to have depression across the board. You know, like a five-year-old kid or a 10-year-old child shouldn't really have depression. Um, They don't have car payments and stress and everything should be (laughs) fresh and happy. You know what I mean? It's just, it's super sad when you see it in children. And that's what you see with more chemical exposure. So some of this stuff, it may or may not cause depression, but it may dispose you higher to depression, right? It may increase the disposition. But um And that's true of all of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, by the way, just like postpartum depression, you know, like I always like to use the analogy of pregnancy because, you know, like sometimes if you think about natural hormones and disrupting those processes, like for example, when women become pregnant, they gain a lot of weight and it's not just a 10 pound baby. It's a lot of fat is extra fat and that's good storage. That's energy storage. And the same thing happens when you, are altering your your metabolism through these chemicals you increase weight you know and it alters your natural levels and this delicate balance that you have and you know a lot of people gain a lot of weight and they can't figure it out because they're told it's just about calories but it's not just about calories their hormones are all messed up and so that's another reflection of pregnancy or you know it's or a disruption of that process or kind of a bastardization of that process or something, a perversion of that process. And the same thing with postpartum depression, you know, you throw your estrogen for a loop, suddenly you have depression and the same thing can occur with a lot of these chemicals. And I know I'm getting off top of B, off topic of BPA a little bit far, but, but anyways, BPA, what the companies did after it became just so apparent that it's terrible for you that they couldn't deny it anymore they switched to BPS or BPF or different analogs, similar compounds to BPA that are just as bad, but they're just playing yeah. alphabet soup. They're just modifying the molecule a little tiny bit, kind of like they do with steroids in athletics. They make the molecule just slightly different so it doesn't get picked up on the drug test. Yes. Yes. It's uh, it's a sleight of hand by these, uh, by these manufacturers because there was obviously a, a massive ad campaign and it entered the, the public awareness that, BPA was bad, so the bottle branding simply just says BPA free, but it's obviously it's made of plastic still, and it's made with a, a modified molecule that is acting uh, chemically in the same way as BPA structurally. That's why the water bottle holds water, um, and they're trying to trying to or ob- obscuring or not disclosing the fact that the BPS or the the variation on BPA 
is it actually having the same endocrine disrupting capability as the original compound that they're supposed to be uh, replacing it with? Yeah. So, so that's uh, something for people to be aware of, which is, um, and maybe maybe at the end of this discussion we can talk about actionable advice. But uh, essentially, not drinking from any form of plastic water bottle is is going always going to be the 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 safest option. Yeah. I, I want to emphasize a point that you made um, in terms of the mechanism of action of these endocrine disruptors, and and what you what Dr. J said is that when when obviously in a in a when a woman becomes pregnant, they physiologically put on a heap of weight, um, and that has a range of evolutionary advantageous uh, 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 reasons, probably because um, the women who didn't store a lot of fat and underwent a short fasting period or or war famine uh, died and weren't able to pass on their offspring so there's obviously an advantage to putting on weight during pregnancy but what what we, what what dr j is saying is that if you're ingesting bpa and other chemicals through plastic water bottles through um, plastic contact with with your food then you're simulating or you're giving your body the the signal of being pregnant when it isn't, and you're giving it a signal of pregnancy from an artificial source, and and what that means is that you might be putting on weight, um, not only by what you're eating, um, but what is contaminating your food. Because you know, I started when I first started this podcast, we we're talking about the effect of um, processed foods and refined sugar and and carbohydrates and seed oils, and they very much contribute to weight gain, but. The fascinating thing that you're saying, Dr. J, is that if you're ingesting, if someone is ingesting BPA or an endocrine disruptor, that might be an additional reason why they're having hard to shift weight. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure is. Yeah. In fact, you can do these animal studies and I've, I've done them and I've seen research. And of course, I cited this specific study in my book, but my favorite study is, is a rat study where they had two groups of rats. And they gave them the exact same calories. Now, you can't really do this with people because people cheat on their diet and they don't tell you and they're not very honest. <laughs> they're eating ice cream <laughs> at night or something. And, but yeah, so with animals, you can literally give them the exact same calories, exact same environment. The only difference between the two groups of rats was one of the groups, they had low dose atrazine in their drinking water. So it kind of goes back to the atrazine discussion we had. And the reason they, I emphasize low dose is because this is the type of dose that people get in their drinking water if they live near fields that are being sprayed. It mm. wasn't some crazy high toxic dose or something like that. They were trying to imitate just the hormone disruption that humans actually get. And what they found was the group of rats, again, same calories, the group of rats that had the atrazine, they were obese. They gained a bunch of weight. The other ones were totally normal. And Sure, maybe if you cut the calories in that atrazine group, at some point they're going to lose weight and at some point they're going to look similar if you starve them, but then they're going to be tired all the time, right? And it's just not going to be good for them. When instead of focusing on the calories in a situation like that, you should be focusing on the hormones and the endocrine disruption. Mm. Yeah, no, that's it's fascinating. And, and look, there's so many uh, overlapping and kind of interwoven issues here and the the delivery as we mentioned about um the canola oil and and the phthalate chemicals that are leaching into it mm-hmm. is that so commonly it's people are getting triple quadruple whammy they're drinking the water with the atrazine they're eating the deep fried donuts and fries in seed oil that is obesogenic in itself rich in linoleic acid and 4 hne and then they're they, they're getting the phthalates so 
uh, and then they're under blue light and they've got a disrupted circadian rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it, it, we're just emphasizing. Or I like to emphasize how there are so many overlapping factors that are contributing to people's poor health, and and yeah. this is just yeah. simply another one of them. And the research too, you know, the confounding variables in the research oftentimes that are overlooked is the plastics. So Mm. sometimes you see these scientific studies on olive oil and they say, look, it's terrible for you. It's causing all these problems in these animal studies. And then they have other studies that say, look, it's amazing for you. It causes all these health benefits and no problems. And it's like, well, what's the difference? Well, they usually don't reveal this in the studies. You can't find this level of nuance in the actual study. But if you work with animals like I do, and like I have for decades, like mice studies and rat studies and rabbit studies and all this, you realize a lot of the researchers you bringing in plastic tubs of olive oil. And then other ones are just going to the store and buying glass vials of it, you know, and, and there's not a lot of consistency there. And there's not a, a lot of openness about where they're getting their sources and, and what containers these are in, because that's a variable and it's an important one. And I think that modifies a lot of the research it changes the results on some of these studies yes yes and and i wanted to go back to you mentioned uh, dr shanna swan and she's she wrote a great book called countdown which uh describes the various effects of different endocrine disruptors uh, on human fertility so obviously we're, we're we're making the point a lot um, in terms of animal studies but for the listeners out there who are thinking okay but what about in humans um, what one point I would say is that the endocrine system in in mammals is highly conserved. So if you're getting endocrine disruption in, in a animal in a mouse study, then that's that's very applicable in my mind to to humans. But the work of Dr. Shanna Swan, looking at um, basically the distance between the the anus uh, and the I believe it, is it the base Generals. of yeah. The genitals, yeah. So the mm-hmm. the distance, that perineal distance, um, is affected in women, sorry, in children whose whose mothers have uh, various types of endocrine disrupting exposure, and then they correlated that to the fertility of that offspring of that child uh, later in life. So so that's a that was a very interesting. She's done very interesting research to prove that, uh, or highly suggest that the ingestion or the exposure of these chemicals in humans uh during pregnancy affects fertility uh later later in life and and you you mentioned diethylstilbestrol uh as the precursor chemical to the to bpa um that's that's basically the archetypal endocrine disruptor uh in in the medical uh field because that caused a very that it was basically used i believe in the between the late 50s and uh, and, and the, even up to the early seventies or, or mid seventies, mm-hmm. maybe. Yep, yep. Um, for what? What was the indication? Was it preterm? Uh, Eclampsia for a little bit, but some of it was just morning sickness. So it was very. Ah, yeah. Okay. And essentially, uh, what it caused was a, a what, uh, what's known as a incredibly rare vaginal clear cell adenoma, adenocarcinoma, which is an incredibly rare type of. Um, vaginal cancer in the women in the sorry the daughters of the women who took it during pregnancy um which was unheard of prior to the to the use of this this drug and i believe that subsequent generations have um also had reproductive abnormalities indicating you know a transgenerational effect of of these 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 drugs so maybe you could talk a little bit quickly about this idea of 
epigenetics and transgenerational effects because I think mm-hmm. that is a topic that is incredibly interesting and, and relevant that no one's really mentioning. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, Shauna Swan wrote her book in 2021. Mine was in 2017 and I cited some of her work. <laughs> oh, wow. So she mostly focused on phthalates and I focused on phthalates and nine other chemicals, right? Mm. Um, but she talks about the epigenetics. I do too. I spent a whole third of my book, a whole third of it was on epigenetics. And the analogy I like to use for people that don't understand epigenetics is musical notes. Because if you have a melody for a song uh, in America, dit, 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 you know, Mary had a little lamb. That's just your genetics. That's just very basic. You can pass that to somebody else. They play the same song. Um, it's not super complicated, but epigenetics would be when you add notes on top of those notes, right? So you add chords or you add other instruments or something. So you still have the same melody. The DNA is still there, but now you have other notes. And technically the, the definition of epigenetics is marks on the DNA. Um, mm. That's the old school definition. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's physical marks on the DNA, usually methylations or ubiquitinations or sumulations or something. It's physical chemical marks. And Sometimes it's marks on the histones or sometimes it's marks on other things too that get passed on. But the point is just think of it as musical notes. You know, the melody is the DNA. The epigenetics are the, the other notes on top of those notes. Um, and that, so, the, again, the most important thing is that that gets passed on. You can pass that on. And that's changing. Your DNA doesn't really change. The epigenetics definitely changes all the time. So you can actually pass on better epigenetics or you can pass on worse epigenetics. And, um, and I think the other thing that's interesting that hasn't really been proven yet, but it's super interesting is epigenetic marks are usually on the letter T. I believe they're on one of the specific base pairs and that's the base pair that gets mutated the most frequently. And I Mm. think epigenetics drives a lot of long-term mutations, meaning Initially, it's just epigenetics. It's just marks on the DNA, but eventually it turns into actual genetic change. Does that make sense? Mm. So again, that's a bit of a hypothesis. It's not super well proven, but Michael Skinner uh, has done a lot of research in this area. He's out in Washington University. and He gave a talk on epigenetics, like a TED talk. and um, We've talked about this a lot over the years and um, and again, I forget the specific detail, the specific base pair, but he knows all this information. But um, And again, it's just a hypothesis. But I think if you keep hammering an epigenetic change, you keep changing the mark on your DNA over and over and over, that certainly increases the likelihood of an actual mutation. Mm. And that mutation can literally ingrain that epigenetic mark into the long-term DNA. Because the yes. difference between epigenetics and genetics is the genetics it's much more thousands of years scale, whereas the epigenetics is more decades, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, the way I think about epigenetics is it's a way that we evolved making changes to increase the likelihood that our children and our descendants would be able to survive in the environment that we are currently living in. Mm-hmm. So obviously our genetic code can't change generation on the scale, on the short time scale of one or two generations. But if we get exposed to a heap of certain um, environmental changes or certain amounts of foods or different nutrient profiles, that that causes epigenetic changes so that the, our children are, are better equipped to survive in the world that they're coming into. Yeah, yeah. The, the you, problem oh, – well, Have you ever heard of that mouse study where they they did with the, uh, the rose smell or the rosebud smell? No. 
Yeah, just to illustrate exactly what you're talking about, they had these mice, and this is a little bit unethical, but they had mice where they they gave they gave them electric shocks if they smelled rose flowers, like rose essential oil or something. Um, and then if they didn't smell it, they didn't give them electric shocks. And and literally several generations later, those baby mice that weren't even given electric shocks, there was only one generation given electric shocks when they had they would give them rose, hit them with electric shocks. Next day, they would give them a smell, this essence of rose, the smell of roses or something like this, electric shocks. And then that was it. And then literally several generations later, the, the, the mice that were, they, when they would smell roses, they would have a cortisol response. They would have a stress response from smelling roses, zero electric shocks for several generations. Wow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it does impact our ability to transmute changes through generations, right? To, to basically communicate important changes through multiple generations without the G- DNA physically changing. And, I mean, it's so incredible and it, it explains, uh, it explains things like, you know, multi-generational traumas and mm-hmm. you can imagine how emotional stress would also um, leave an epigenetic mark on, mm-hmm. on uh, yeah. subsequent generations. But um, what it also is relevant for is uh, endocrine disruption, which mm-hmm. is, uh, as we talked about, if you're exposed to diethylstrobestrol or perhaps even the combo of phthalate and BPA and uh, atrazine that most people are probably getting today in Australia or in America, then what, what what are you doing for that child or your child's child ability to to reproduce? Are you, uh, I mean, I, I would suggest, and maybe you would too, Anthony, that that, that child is going to have uh, a legacy of fertility issues because of the exposures of their their grandparent or their great grandparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're going to blame themselves, right? Unless they're educated on this, which is frustrating because you know a lot of times the grandparents are healthier than the offspring in these in these animal studies when you have these exposures. And so if the grandparents say like, "Hey, I used to drink out of plastic all the time. I used to do fragrances all over the all different types of weird chemical fragrances that were artificial synthetic." And I was fine, right? So look at me. Therefore, I'm fine. You should be fine. Something else is wrong with you, right? That's usually kind of implied. And in reality, it can it can amplify. And, if you, and the other thing about epigenetics in, in the relation, in the context of sex hormones, sex hormones are unique compared to a lot of hormones. Like if you have insulin or something, which is a hormone, it doesn't go into the cell, you know, it, it sticks to receptors on the outside surface of the cell. And then those receptors get triggered and amplify a response inside the cell, but they never goes in the cell. Whereas testosterone, it actually goes into the cell. That's unique, right? Estrogen goes into the cell. Uh, progesterone, like sex hormones go inside the cell, first of all, right? And a lot mm. of hormones don't do that. And number two, they don't just go into the cell, Max. And I know you'd probably know this, but they go into the nucleus. The nucleus it has its own membrane. You know, our cells have a membrane around them. I always call it a pillowcase, but our DNA actually has its own pillowcase. It has its own membrane and almost nothing goes in there. Like that's a really stringent area that you don't want to be messing with. So the cells don't allow anything to go in there hardly, but estrogen, testosterone, sex hormones go into the nuclear membrane. They go through that membrane, meaning they're particularly impactful for epigenetics. They're right there. They're acting on your epigenetics in a direct way instead of an indirect way through the outside of the cell. They're right in there. 
Mm. And so, of course, you're going to expect to see a lot more dramatic epigenetic changes when you start manipulating sex hormone levels, start altering sex hormones of any type. And it goes back to that delicate balance that your cells are expecting and then you're disrupting that. So that's honestly the biggest red flag in my whole book and my whole focus when I talk is to focus on, look, it's not just me and you, it's future generations amplifying this response. And, and that's a lot sneakier. Number one, it's sneaky because it doesn't look toxic. And right? if you do research studies, it doesn't even seem toxic. So you get the governments and things saying, look, it's not even toxic. So that reassures people. So then people are doing that. And then number two, nobody's talking about the multi-generational impacts, which are even more problematic because they're even more sneaky. And anytime you have something sneaky with humans, it's usually ignored. <laughs> unless, yeah. unless your house is burning down, you pretty much ignore the problems that are long-term it's just human nature unless you're very well educated or you're, you know, highly motivated in, in relation to your health or your ancestors, right. You want to pass off good genes or whatever. You're really motivated. It's difficult, man. It's a challenge. It's a, And it's so fascinating and so insidious because as you said, it's not something that's obvious enough that people are jumping up and down about, but it's truly kind of civilization ending um, problem. It's like a slow, slowly creeping, um, yeah, poison, and uh, just attacking that 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 fundamental ability to to reproduce. The the I'll just share an, an analogy that I use as well for for uh, epigenetic uh, harm, and it was one that I came up with, or that a friend of mine came up with, which was imagine if you got a, a tattoo um, on on your shoulder, and then when you had a child, a baby. Uh, that mm. kid came out with uh, <laughs> with a tattoo um, on its end, but not only like you might just get a, a tattoo on your on your shoulder, but what if the baby came out with a sleeve tattoo? Wow! And yeah, then man. that, and then his baby came out <laughs> with full body tattoos. Oh my gosh! Like that that that's an that's a visual analogy for people to think about epigenetic harm, because what Doctor J and what we're both saying is there's there's evidence of cumulative epigenetic harm. So it's like the the genome's taking a battering on the, the the first generation can handle it, and the second generation there's decreasing and third generation decreasing ability to um to th- there's less and less insult needed to provoke more and more disease. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So well, in the tattoo examples, especially funny because. The positive side of this whole thing is we can alter our epigenetics in a positive way, right? So if you use a sauna, for example, that improves your sex hormones, right? Um, you know, you get out and exercise that improves your sex hormones, improves your epigenetics, and you're passing on better uh, epigenetics. And the irony with the tattoos is, you know, if you get out in the sunshine a lot, tattoos fade away. Sunshine mm. helps to break down tattoo ink. And so you can make an argument that, look, you can erase these tattoos, right? Even though they're Mm. getting larger, you get out in the sunshine and break that ink down and your body breaks it down. Your body doesn't see it as a positive thing to have a tattoo. It sees it as a toxin, basically. Sunshine helps to clear that, break it down to smaller pieces and helps your body flush it out. So you can do that too. But it always starts with avoidance, right? Like when we talk about practical ways to, to to kind of work around these chemicals, I would say just classify plastics as most likely problematic. Sure, there's some plastics out there that exist that don't have estrogens. You can find like plastic number five and things like that. And and some of them are made from corn and they are estrogen free. 
there are, it just costs a little bit more. So most companies don't use these. So just generally be skeptical of plastics, especially liquids and plastic. People are always asking me, what about this food? And what about that food? It's like, Hey, if it's a solid, it's a solid food in a plastic, it's fine. There's no leaching in solids. It's Mm. the liquids, especially the oils. If you have oils that are in plastic, there's much more leaching than in just regular water. And if you heat it up, it's even worse. You see, so there's a scale, there's a grade or a gradient, but plastics are always a problem. And then the fragrances, I always tell people, look, you got to change your personal care products. Most of these fragrances are nonsense. They're full of petroleum based artificial chemicals that disrupt your hormones. Some of them haven't been studied at all. So I'm just hypothesizing here, but some of them have been well studied and they're definitely endocrine disrupting. Right. And so fragrances and filter your drinking water. That's the, that's how you start, you know? Yeah. I think it's it's simple. Yeah. Great points. And, and I like to take patients. I'll I'll open up. There's a great uh, website called EWG and Mm -hmm. they've got a, uh, a database where you can put your care products in and, and get a rating out of 10 about the, the presence of, of, of nasty, harmful chemicals. Yep. And look, you can type in something, you know, a, a very, very common fragrance that many young women would be wearing, like, I don't know, Mark Jacobs Daisy or something like this. And you put it in the database and it's got a 10 out of t- 10 rating. It's, it's red, red, red warning mm-hmm. signs. Uh, and because it contains phthalates, they've got and and I believe the phthalate is being used as an artificial fixative for the fragrance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, previously, they used whale vomit um, back in the day, <laughs> um, but that was too expensive, so they found a synthetic version, and um, it, it's potently endocrine disrupting. Yeah. Yeah, and they use it as a cheap filler too because it's petroleum based, so you can buy like truckloads of this stuff for next to nothing. You can buy kilograms mm-hmm. of it. Mm. for hardly anything so they oftentimes will tell you that it's a fixative or that it carries the fragrance further in the air or whatever kind of and it probably does a little bit but at the end of the day mostly these companies are trying to make money and so Mm. they're using these products because they're cheaper so it does cost more if you want if you love fragrances and you want to be all uh, you know have, have a lot of fragrances in your in your whatever laundry detergents and your deodorants and then your shampoos and all be careful you know, a lot of those, you have to, you have to spend more money. It's just the way it is. I just go fragrance free most of the time, you know, with almost everything. That's a very safe way to do it. And the other thing is sunscreens are usually a problem. There's a lot of problematic sunscreens. There's good ones out there. They do exist like zinc sunscreen, perfectly fine. But, you know, a lot of sunscreen has, has estrogen mimicking chemicals. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and look, uh, I believe Hawaii banned uh, sunscreens, oxybenzone sunscreens, mm-hmm. because the reef was exactly. dying. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not because it was harming human health, but because people were swimming with these sunscreens on and it was killing their, their tourist attraction. Oh, yeah. There's so, like six or seven countries now that have banned it. So, I mean, that, that goes to the against the point of um, we, we talked earlier in the podcast about it, they're not being in, inherently toxic, but I guess these oxybenzone compounds probably have a direct cytotoxicity in addition to endocrine disrupting function in water yeah if the animals are living if if they're living in oxybenzone soup and it's absorbing (laughs) through their skin constantly yeah you see the toxic levels it's just such a it's it's just basically at that point it's it's well the other thing is sea life marine life has a shorter lifespan there's certain organisms that they only live a few weeks or a few months or a year or whatever so you can research the their lifespan and their infertility a lot more than humans because it takes a hundred years for us, you know? Yeah. But for them, you can see it a lot quicker. So then they're quicker to respond because they are killing off the reefs with all this nonsense. Um, 
so yeah. yeah, that's that's another one I don't want to overlook. And of course, soy we talked about again. People can can do soy if they want, but I everybody agrees it's estrogen. My opinion is we don't want more estrogen in our bodies. We're going to get a lot of estrogen as it is with the yeah, artificial and look, estrogen. Yeah, and and there's so I mean the soy issue goes so deep. And I I talked to Belinda Fecky on this podcast and. You you go all the way back to the origins of of the pushing of soy in in the food supply, and it and it started with John Harvey. Well, it started before John Harvey Kellogg. Started with mm-hmm. a uh, Lena Cooper and the Seventh Day Adventists, who have had a devout religious uh, belief that uh, eating animal meat and animal fat and animal products was going to arouse carnal passions and mm-hmm. cause people to pollute themselves uh, alone in their bedrooms. So that's why they uh they they insisted that people eat soy and eat cereal and cornflakes mm-hmm. so there, there, there's and and now the soy industry is incredibly is a massive uh yeah. industrial agricultural behemoth uh especially in the u.s where um of, of growing soy that will that requires the spraying of of herbicides and pesticides um that are going to be causing health issues so i mean i guess that's another another emphasis for the listener which is there's so many interwoven uh, harm, harmful um, issues and, and incentives that are there's all built into this current system that we're existing in, and it takes uh, an immense degree of intentionality uh, in 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 living and thinking to to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, but it can be done. I mean, I do it, and uh, you know, I know a lot of people that do nowadays, and it makes a huge difference. You know, their blood test looks amazing, and it's not just their cholesterol, like all the doctors are tend to focus on the conventional doctors it's their triglycerides are amazing their blood sugar is amazing you know their hormones their testosterone level for men are amazing their estrogen progesterone for women amazing you know it, it, it the problem is a lot of the conventional doctors don't check male, male testosterone mm. you know just unless you beg them to check it they won't check it and, and for women they're not going to check your progesterone and estrogen unless you argue with them and say hey i want this check you know so a lot of people don't realize their hormones are wacky or their hormones are good or whatever, but I track this stuff all the time, you know? So I, I, I mean, basically for the past few years, I've been doing DNA consulting and I look at people's 23 and me and I look at their ancestry reports or whatever their DNA data that they have. And we go through their vulnerable spots and try and figure out just practical ways to fix those issues with the culture that we live in right now. So it's kind of like consulting slash coaching, right? And it, it, it does work, man. Like I talk to like four or five people every single day from different, different states, different countries, you know, all over the world. It's super interesting. But the people that are consistent and that are working hard at this, they're much, much healthier. It, it has real life ramifications. It's not hopeless. Yeah. And so maybe we can quickly talk uh, about some, some actionable advice. So you said uh, avoiding synthetic care products and products that obviously contain the ingredients such as phthalate fragrance perfume which implies uh phthalate uh anything that contains paraben or uh, as you said methyl methyl paraben anything with the paraben word in it so th- th- those are one big bunch of uh class of compounds which is the care care products yeah. uh then you mentioned uh, avoiding plastic contact with liquid and ideally plastic contact with foods um, so I, I like to tell people to store their food in glass, drink out of glass or, or stainless steel if they have to, yeah. um, cook in a stainless steel pan, cook out of a cast iron pan instead of a, a non-stick pan. What, what, what's your thought on those ceramic non-stick pans? 
Ceramic is okay. Anytime the word nonstick gets added to it, that always makes me nervous. The ceramic part is fine. Mm. The nonstick part is when they're coating it with plastics, <laughs> Teflon, yeah. all kinds of shenanigans. But no, the, the, the actual ceramic is fine. Like sometimes people have Dutch ovens, which are just 100% ceramic. Those are great. Yeah. Yeah. And enameled cookware is also a good option mm-hmm. um, yep. that, that avoids that. Crock and pots, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. what, what, I mean, water, water filtration is, is a, and, and I guess water itself is quite a nuanced topic, but I think at, at a high level, uh, charcoal filtering should remove most of these endocrine disruptors, if I'm Correct. not wrong. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Charcoal, carbon. Sometimes they call it carbon, but it's act, it's technically activated charcoal, but a lot of companies just call it carbon filters, and that's fine. But yeah, almost all of them have it, by the way. Like you can just get a standard Brita filter or something, just a standard water faucet filter that's inexpensive, and it will have activated charcoal in there. Mm-hmm. So I encourage people to do that. You have to. You have to do that today in our culture. All the plastic piping the water is piped through just to get to your house, you know, that's a problem. And then they don't filter a lot of these chemicals out. So they get further concentrated at the municipal water supply level, you know, because they're good at killing viruses and bacteria, but they don't see it as a problem to have some of these plastic particles in this, in the water. So you got to filter it out. You have to basically take your own, you have to take their responsibility into your own hands. Yes. And and I make that point that municipal water uh, historically has been uh, intended or optimized for removal of biological Mm -hmm. which is parasites, protozoa, bacteria, but uh, they're not looking as fine with a fine, fine tooth comb at herbicidal contaminants or in some places Mm -hmm. that recycle their water, the the presence of, of of pharmaceutical drugs contaminating trace, trace Mm -hmm. levels. Um, Well, on the, um, while I've got you, I mean, on the topic of hormonal birth control um, What's what's your take? I mean, if we're thinking about some of these endocrine disruptors, they have potential for increasing the risk of ectopic pregnancies and um, kind of premature ovarian failure. When you look at some of the data about um, BPA, mm-hmm. the, the 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 synthetic estrogens don't seem to have those same type of risks. Maybe an increased risk of, of of mild, a small increased risk of breast cancer. What's your take on on the synthetic? therapeutic use of, of of hormonal birth control um in terms of endocrine disrupting and health yeah it's genetic right i mean some people when when i do dna analysis i'm just looking at snips right like 23 and me has 700,000 snips it's not trivial it's a lot of data and i have my own software to analyze this so when i look at people's genetics i'm actually looking at a whole panel of estrogen genes, like their estrogen receptor alpha genes and their estrogen receptor beta genes, right? Because alpha and beta are the two estrogen receptors, for example. And one of those is very positive and one's very negative in terms of activation. If you're hyperactivating your alpha receptor, you're going to have a lot of health problems. But again, I'm getting into the weeds, but this is more specific for you, Max, than your general audience. But the point is, you know, I'm looking, I look at people's genes and if people have a, a long list of estrogen risk genes, meaning like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, just, you know, estrogen dominance type of things where their progesterone is low and their estrogen is high. I, I, I find real problems with birth control and that's what I see in real life. And that's what, those are the people that are, you know, they really struggle with the weight gains from the birth control or the depression from the birth control or just all the side effects. The people that do fine are the ones with good estrogen genes. So it's, you can't just lump everybody together. You know, that's how they do a lot of studies, right? Is they just lump everybody together and say, Oh, look, it's a 3% uh, 
uh, increased risk of breast cancer. It's like, well, yeah, but as a culture, we've increased our breast cancer risk 250% since 1980. And in other words, we're so saturated in all these estrogen chemicals. When you try and just study birth control, we're already washed out in all these other chemicals. You're not seeing the differences that you should see, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's it's a, a person to person difference. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, and that's, again, that's a comment on the way research is done in today's day and age where you, you, you take a very heterogeneous population who having massively different um, effects in in, in different directions, but when yeah. you average them all out, you, you get an average treat, uh, uh, look at things that isn't necessarily going to identify the, the most people who responded the most. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah. if you're, if you're doing an Alzheimer's study and there's a small subset of people where their brain doesn't clear heavy metals very well. But if you just have a million people in a study, you're not going to pick that up. You're going to say, Oh, heavy metals aren't a problem. But if you just pick out those people with that specific genetic risk and you look at them and then you measure their their heavy metals like their mercury and their cobalt and chromium and cadmium or whatever, you're going to say, oh, my gosh, like that really has an impact on their risk of Alzheimer's if you do a long enough term study. So, yeah, like the SNPs are very powerful and they're underutilized because it's because of the way the studies have been done historically, because there's kind of a tradition in science of just lumping everybody together and doing epidemiology that way. Yes. Governments like that because it saves them a lot of money on medications and things, right? If you just do enough epidemiology, they, they save a lot of money when they have government run healthcare. Yes. But it's, it's kind of dated, right? It's kind of now that we have the capacity to look at people's individual genetic risks, it's, it's much more valuable and that's why I do it. Right. Because you can understand your body so much better instead of just guessing and wondering what's going on. Yes. Yes. Before we wrap it up, I just wanted to ask you another couple kind of niche questions. Are you aware of, we, we talked about um, cattle and, and feedlot fed cattle um, excreting atrazine if they're being fed commodity grains that are is contaminated with atrazine residue for, for, for those well, general reasons I, I like to recommend people eat fully grass-fed, uh, uh, regeneratively raised beef or things like uh, wild, wild-caught venison that is going to be basically the ruminant is eating its natural diet. Are you aware of, of bioaccumulation or bioconcentration of herbicides and other kind of chemicals in the adipose or the fat tissue of ruminants? Um. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's even in, even in animals that yes, but it's, it's even in deer and things, you know, because a lot of the deer Hmm. eating atrazine sprayed corn, there's been some more recent concern about hunting because the idea is like, because me personally, I hunt Hmm. in America. A lot of people hunt. It's kind of a tradition, especially because in my area you can shoot unlimited deer. I can just keep buying more licenses and keep shooting deer. Mm. <laughs> and so I can literally shoot a hundred if I want to and donate them to soup kitchens and things and feed homeless people. Cool. And I, and I do some of that, but for the most part, I just use it for my own personal source of regenerative food. But, but then I try and hunt in areas. I go out of my way to hunt in areas that, uh, where the deer are just living in a cornfield. Yes. Yes. Because, uh, those ones have been shown to have higher levels of atrazine and things, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's ironically not as well studied as a lot of the predators, you know, because the 
predators. Of course, when you work it up the food chain, it gets more concentrated. And then when it's more concentrated, it's more the cancer causing doses and the doses that are causing actual toxicity, not just yes. hormone disruption. Yes, 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 yes. And and look, we haven't even talked about glyphosate because I believe glyphosate, uh, obviously, it's having its main um, negative effect by disrupting the shikimate pathway, which is a, a bacterial um, metabolism pathway. Um, but I believe it also has an endocrine disrupting effect in, in humans other, other than nuking your gut microbiome. Yep, it, it does. And in fact, I didn't write about that in my book and I wish I would have because the research was so new when I was writing, I didn't realize it. And I, I had a hard time understanding why does glyphosate act like estrogen? It has an estrogenic impact too. Like if you look up soy and glyphosate and estrogen on PubMed or something, you're going to find a lot of studies, but I, it's in the molecule does not look anything like estrogen. But if you make it a dimer, if you, you know, glyphosate, as you know, it, it chelates metals, it sticks to metals, right? Mm. Like zinc and magnesium, and cobalt and chromium. And, and once it's linked to a metal, once it's chelated to a metal, it can form a dimer where there's two glyphosates on a single metal. And that starts to look like an estrogen. You see? Wow. And so as a monomer, it kind of evaded me because I didn't, I couldn't see it. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it was acting like estrogen because I, I, it just doesn't look like estrogen. You know what I mean? But as mm. I recognize now, it's starting, it's forming these multi-complex chelation complexes, you know, and that's how it's triggering the estrogen receptor. And it's doing other things like it's an antibiotic, like you're saying. And there's a researcher from MIT. Um, I forget her name, but. Oh, uh, Stephanie Seneff. Stephanie. Yeah. She's pretty famous yeah. because she's done a lot of research looking at glyphosate acting like glycine and actually incorporating mm. into the ligaments and tissues in your joints where you have a lot of glycine. In fact, there's a study where they show that in animal ligaments, there's all this, like, there's a ton of uh, glyphosate and it's like, well, how does that in, you know, it shouldn't be in, the, even after you wash out the ligaments, it's built into the ligaments. Well, it's because wow. it's replacing the glycine. So there's a lot of aspects to glyphosate that are real, that are real problematic besides just the estrogen. The mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a really deep conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, are you before we wrap this up? And and again, this is uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I, I interviewed Dr. Jack Cruz, who's very. I'm not sure if you're aware of his work. Mm-hmm. He's um he's very much uh, talks about the impact of light and health, mm-hmm. and describing a lot of uh or ascribing a lot of the disruption in um perhaps uh, precocious puberty and other forms of reproductive uh, harm to the light environment and excessive exposure to to blue light and and I had a quick look at this and I well not not quick look at the I had a quick look at um, specific rat studies and there was some good evidence that exposing um, rats to blue light environments um, did induce an, an earlier um, Puberty. So, are you aware of the circadian effect of uh, on fertility? Is in addition to things like estrogen, like chemicals? Oh, sure. Yeah, and lack of exercise alters your hormones, right? Like lack of magnesium, lack of minerals. There's so many aspects to it, mm. and we're getting mm. a lot of people are getting hit by all of it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, but at least the knowledge is out there. You know, like people that people that are kind of becoming more independent than they're thinking and, and just listening to podcasts and educating themselves, you can go a long ways. It's very impressive how educated people are, are becoming independently. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I mean the the, the takeaway <laughs> the takeaway point is simply, and, and I like to use an ancestral lens, which is you know adopt a, a lifestyle that's that's as much as possible that's free from the type of of exposures that that didn't exist when we yep. we evolved and. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Blue light fits into that category, and atrazine, uh, bisphenol A, phthalate, and diethylsilbestrol, and everything else also fits in fits mm-hmm. into that category very strongly. So, uh, exactly. yeah, a good philosophy. No, yeah. that's the way to do it. That's exactly what I talk about in my book too. I mean, yeah, you we're know, well, um, doing it's probably your gut bacteria probably aren't going to recognize it. Your body, your genetics is not going to be adapted to it. Yeah. Look, I, I'm 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 really fascinated and I really appreciate all your work, Anthony. I think I think the this is such an emerging and under talked about field. And maybe even the the interaction of the of, of herbicides and the effect that these industrial herbicide contamination of of the human food supply I think is is another emerging field that, that's gonna get more recognition in the next decade. But um, yeah, really, really appreciate you coming on. I, look, I really think maybe we need to do another episode where we can go into the the, the weeds a little bit of the each classes because we only we talked about pesticides, phthalates, parabens, um, and BPA, but we we didn't really talk about uh, PFAS, the perfluoral and polyfluoro alkyl substances. We haven't talked about um, the endocrine disrupting effect of heavy metals. Um, so there's a lot we we actually haven't talked about that I'd like to get your thoughts on. So maybe maybe I could get you on again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Max. Appreciate it. And, and yeah, well, and I, I'm impressed with your knowledge of all this stuff and the terms and everything else too. Most people they're not nearly as familiar with it as you are, so that makes it more interesting. And hopefully, we didn't lose too many people talking about yeah. some of the technical stuff. Yeah, if you to the listeners, if you made it this far, then uh, well, well done. We got a little bit technical at the end, but uh, I've I've had some burning questions on my mind for probably a couple of years now, so uh, I uh, got yeah, them right. out today. But yeah, um, we'll, we'll we'll have to talk again. So yeah, thank thank you Thanks, so much, Anthony. I really appreciate your time. All right, thank, thank, take care. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.